Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Today on Velshi, a split-screen political landscape is unfolding in front of us with Joe Biden officially launching his re-election campaign against a gathering Republican field that is still dominated by the twice-impeached ex-president who is subject of multiple ongoing criminal investigations and currently a defendant in a civil case playing out in New York City this week. If we are gearing up for a 2020 rematch, it'll be a very different scene this time around. Plus, the U.S. conducts its first mass evacuation of American citizens trapped in Sudan amid deadly fighting. We'll get the very latest. And it was no accident that the lawsuit seeking to ban abortion pills across the United States arrived in front of one particular ultra-conservative Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas. The anti-abortion plaintiffs in that case did what's known as judge shopping. And another conservative coalition is doing it again with the same judge. I'll have the details on that case. And I'll talk to Democrats. Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono about her plan to put a stop to it. Then, new evidence of the deadly reality on the ground in post-Roe America, in one state where women live under strict abortion bans, most hospitals could not explain their own emergency abortion procedures. Velshi starts now. And a very good morning to you. It is Sunday, April the 30th. I'm Ali Velshi. Exactly four years after announcing his campaign for president, Joe Biden made his bid for re-election official this past Tuesday, setting up the possibility of a rematch against his 2020 opponent, Donald Trump. But a lot has changed since the two men were last up for election. And at this early stage of the 2024 election cycle, they find themselves in vastly different circumstances. For one thing, Joe Biden's got the upper hand this time as he's the incumbent and he's using his position to help frame his message, which his campaign boiled down to one simple phrase, quote, let's finish the job. Biden's re-election announcement video opens with images of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and abortion rights protests at the Supreme Court. Two key issues for Democrats that continue to plague the Republican Party, especially when it comes to elections. Both issues are also directly or indirectly linked to Trump, who remains under investigation by special prosecutor Jack Smith for his role in attempting to overturn the 2020 election and who transformed the Supreme Court into a conservative institution, paving the way for Roe v. Wade to be overturned last summer. But while Biden has jumped into the race with a focused message about defending Americans' freedoms and personal rights, Trump has been fixated in recent weeks with stopping the momentum of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's been the former president's main rival for the GOP nomination so far. DeSantis has not yet announced a presidential bid, but according to four GOP operatives with whom NBC News has spoken, he is set to announce an exploratory committee as soon as mid-May. A recent NBC News poll showed that Trump still has a solid lead over DeSantis, who's the only other official or prospective candidate polling in the double digits right now. Trump's campaign continued its attacks on the governor this week with its first TV ad focusing on how DeSantis owes his political career to Trump. 
It's in stark contrast to the Democrats who appear to be falling in line to support Biden's reelection. Even Bernie Sanders, a top independent progressive in Congress, who was also Biden's main challenger during the 2020 primaries, came out with an early endorsement of the president, telling the Associated Press, quote, I'm in it to do what I can to make sure that the president is reelected, end quote. Biden's also trying to emphasize the strength of the Democratic coalition and especially his partnership with Vice President Kamala Harris. The vice president was featured heavily in Biden's reelection announcement video and has been taking the lead on the administration's support for reproductive rights as part of a concerted effort to elevate her profile. Meanwhile, Trump's embattled relationship with his own former vice president may be a huge liability for him as Mike Pence considers entering the presidential race himself. And on top of that, Pence spent Thursday, uh, several hours at least of Thursday, testifying to the federal grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now, aside from Pence's testimony to the federal grand jury, the writer and columnist E. Jean Carroll also testified in court this week about her allegation that the former president raped her in a dressing room back in the 1990s. Trump has denied the allegations, and we're going to have more on that later in the show. But that really underscores the vastly different circumstances of Biden's campaign compared to that of his Republican counterpart. There is a lot at stake for Americans and for democracy at large with this upcoming presidential election. One state at the front lines of all of it is North Carolina, where abortion rights, voting rights and no less than the future of democracy itself hangs in the balance. Joining me now is the Democratic governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper. Uh, governor, good to see you. And it's one of those rare occasions where you and I get to talk and it's not a hurricane or, or, or some disaster. So I appreciate your time this morning. Um, governor, let's talk about this, because, in fact, there is a case before the Supreme Court, uh, Moore v. Harper, that is directly related to North Carolina and legislatures and their rights and the the fact that in many southern legislatures there is this move toward supremacy of the legislature and no accountability to to any court so you really are when i said north carolina is at the front line of some of these uh issues you really are we are ali we're also the fullback of presidential politics republicans have to win north carolina in order to be president democrats don't but we often have the very closest presidential race and know how important it is to make sure that Republicans keep having to pour their resources and time into North Carolina in a presidential race. But you also have these Republican legislatures across the country that are seizing power and that are taking advantage of the overturning of Roe v. Wade in order to restrict women's reproductive freedom and to restrict voting rights. Our Republican legislature in North Carolina actually went to the United States Supreme Court and argued the independent legislature theory, saying that they should have complete control on how federal elections are run in North Carolina, and that even a gubernatorial veto or a state Supreme Court ruling otherwise would not even count, that they are the ones who control. Uh, we see ultra-extreme gerrymandering from this court. Our state Supreme Court uh, a couple of years ago ruled that their extreme partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional. And guess what? When the districts were fair in North Carolina, we now have seven Democrats and seven Republicans in Washington representing North Carolina in Congress. But now our state Supreme Court has ruled that the legislature 
can draw in an extreme partisan gerrymandering way. And I would expect that you would see potentially a 10-4. They may even attempt to draw an 11-3, even in a state that's 50-50. That's why it's so important that we also pay attention not only to the national races, but to governor's races and state legislative races across the country. Because we have a lot of brave legislators and Democratic governors who are fighting battles for freedom, for women's freedom, for the freedom to vote, uh, making sure that we are standing in the breach here. Uh, you know, one thing I want you to help us understand. Yesterday, I had a conversation with a uh, Republican state senator from South Carolina, one of five women in the in the uh, in the state Senate who banded together to for the third time in a year overcome uh, uh, abortion restrictions or absolute abortion restrictions in that state. You look at the Tennessee House where they they, they threw the two Justins out. That is a state where there's a Republican supermajority. And yet some of those Republicans actually run unopposed. They don't have a Democratic opponent because there's no chance they're going to lose in their districts. Let's go back to North Carolina for a second. You won your last election by more than 250,000 votes over your Republican opponent. And as you said, the, dele- the, 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 the delegation is seven uh, rep- Republicans and seven Democrats. Why is it in these states? You are an example of how gerrymandering has affected the fact that there are states that have Democratic governors, but Republican majorities in their, in their state legislatures, even though they're the same voters. Yeah, we, we need to have independent redistricting commissions to draw lines. You can see, particularly now with technology, they can be technologically diabolical in the way they draw these districts down to the household. And we've seen it in North Carolina where Republicans have said uh, that, that they are actually attempting to draw these districts so more Republicans can be elected. But I think it's really important to note, though, that across the country, that there is hope. Democratic legislators are fighting. You mentioned South Carolina. I was there Friday night at the Clyburn Fish Fry at the the Democratic Party convention there. Their hopes were sky high because they had brave Democratic legislators who were able to find Republican legislators to help prevent this extreme abortion ban that they were trying to push through the, the legislature. And, and Ali, you and I both know that the people of this country do not support supreme, uh, extreme abortion bans by large margins. And I think enough Republicans are recognizing what a liability. Not only is it going to kill women, not only is it going to hurt women's health care, which is the most important thing, but politically, it's going to hurt Republicans in 2024. We saw this issue in our governor's races across the country. We had historic wins at a time when normally when the first president's midterm comes, it's it's an apocalypse for that party. This time we finished plus two Republican governors. We now represent 57% of the population Democratic governors do. And we are standing for freedom, fighting for democracy, protecting women's reproductive health. These issues help drive people to the polls 
in 2022. I believe they will be there in 2024. It also, in a low unemployment world, may drive people to your states, right? I mean, this is what I've heard from uh, from Governor Inslee in Oregon, Governor Whitmer in Michigan, Governor Healy in Massachusetts, that 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 old saw that that Republican states used to use to lure businesses and people from from Democratic states is now reversed. It's the come to our states and we will protect your freedoms. It's unfortunate that we have to be that way in this country. And, and make no mistake, many of the Republicans have said that we, this should be decided at the state level. You only have to look at this ridiculous lawsuit on Mithropristone to understand that they are still working to ban abortion nationally. You only have to look at what this Republican Congress under Kevin McCarthy and his right wing is doing on abortion to understand that if Republicans got control of the national apparatus, you would see a national abortion ban. So let's don't be fooled by that. We still have to fight these battles at the state level, but we have to win in 2024. And Joe Biden can do it. There's no question. He's done more in two years than most presidents can hope to do in eight I, I, my first four years as governor was with Donald Trump, and it was infrastructure week every other week. Never happened. When Joe Biden was elected, we got it. We, we, know, we know what a difference he's made in this country, and we have to win in 2024. As a, as a business and economics reporter, uh, Stephanie Rule and I were always very excited on the Monday of those infrastructure weeks that something was going to get done in America. And I think by Monday afternoon, uh, it was over because Donald Trump had gone in some different direction. I, by the way, didn't mean to break any news here this morning. Uh, governor Inslee is still, in fact, the governor of Washington state. He has not moved over uh, to Oregon. Governor, good to see you, as always. Thank you for joining us this morning. I think there's a lot more that you and I need to talk about. So I'm going to right now invite you back so that we can continue this conversation. Thanks for being with us. I'll be back, Allie. Thank you so much. Roy Cooper, governor of North Carolina. Got that one right. All right, coming up on a power-packed edition of Velshi, I'll talk to Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii about the dangers of judge shopping, how it undermines democracy, and what needs to be done to end that practice. Plus, Russia once again ramping up deadly aerial attacks on civilians across the country, including in uh, Kiev. I'll talk to retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. An armed U.S. drones escorted a convoy of hundreds of American citizens escaping deadly fighting in Sudan. How the situation got to this point including the people and the countries involved. That's next on Velshi. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. A fragile truce has collapsed in Sudan. Uh, airstrikes and fighting have intensified in the capital city of Khartoum. Several countries, including the United States, were able to evacuate their personnel out of Sudan before the intense fighting started back up. And now the U.S. State Department says hundreds of American citizens, non-diplomatic staff, were evacuated on Saturday. A U.S. official confirms to NBC News that the U.S. government organized a convoy that evacuated American citizens from Khartoum to Port Sudan. It was protected by armed U.S. drones that flew above it. But while the world rushes to evacuate their citizens, 
Millions of Sudanese civilians remain caught between two rogue generals and their ambitions for power. Indiscriminate shelling and gun battles have rocked Khartoum, devastating residential neighborhoods and leaving more than 500 people dead and thousands injured. General Abdel Fateh Burhan, the commander of Sudan's military, is locked in a bloody power struggle with General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, who is better known as Hemeti the head of the paramilitary group that is known as the Rapid Support Forces, RSF for short. A tenuous ceasefire, which was extended for another 72 hours on Friday, has failed to curb the heavy fighting, and these two generals trace their origins to another Sudanese conflict, the Darfur Genocide. Some of you may recall the Save Darfur campaign from 20 years ago, when rebels in Darfur, which is a poor, remote region in western Sudan, rose up against the authoritarian rule of President Omar al-Bashir. Bashir responded with brute force, dispatching security forces that ruthlessly crushed that rebellion. Hundreds of thousands of people died. Women were systematically raped. Millions were displaced. The international community went on to declare the actions of Sudan's military a genocide. Both Generals Burhan and Hemeti were key figures during the Darfur genocide, working together to crush the uprising on behalf of the authoritarian central government. In the years since, both men rose through the military ranks and enhanced their power and influence. Okay, fast forward to 2019, when a popular democratic uprising drove Bashir from power. Following his ouster, several undemocratic regimes from Egypt to Russia to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates backed both the army and the militia in order to protect their interests in the country and to thwart the prospect of a democracy from flourishing in their backyard. And in 2021, Burhan and Hameti teamed up to co-orchestrate a coup to overthrow the Sudanese government. But their alliance broke down over how to manage a transition to a civilian government in Sudan. The Guardian columnist and Sudanese-born journalist Nasreen Malik writes that, quote, Sudan's tragedy is, tragedy is that of a country that dared to ask for more and is now being punished for it. It joins a grim procession of Arab states that over the past 10 years overthrew dictators only to see hopes for democracy dashed. And as the Sudanese people continue to pay the price for the poor decisions of their leaders and those in distant capitals, we are now in Sudan full circle. The same international actors responsible for forging these two power-hungry leaders are working frantically to pull them back from the callous rampage. Meanwhile, the prospect of a civil war in Sudan looms tragically in front of us. And about 2,200 miles north of Sudan, a giant inferno erupted at an oil depot in the Russian-held city of Sevastopol in Crimea. Could this be the start of the anticipated Ukrainian spring counteroffensive? I'll discuss that with the retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday.
One of the themes organically in today's show is this American split-screen political landscape. So let's take a moment to remember what America's foreign policy and global reputation looked like just a couple of years ago under the former president, a reality to which we could return if he is reelected. This is Donald Trump on the campaign trail on Thursday. Lenin, did anyone ever hear of Lenin? He said, the vote counter is far more important than the candidate. Has anyone ever heard that's Lenin? Lenin, as they say, as they say in Russia. It's an awful lot to dissect here, so let's just stick to the obvious. One, no one in Russia says Lenin. No one anywhere says Lenin. And two, those words were not spoken by Vladimir Lenin at all. The quote has been attributed instead to Joseph Stalin, although there's debate about whether Stalin actually said it or if it's just fake news. As for another brutal Russian leader, Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine, we continue to awake, uh, await an anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. The battle for Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine continues, and Russia has ramped up missile attacks on civilian targets far from the front. Yesterday, a massive fire erupted, erupted at an oil depot in in Sevastopol, Crimea, not a name you've heard a lot recently. Uh, this was hit by two Ukrainian drones, according to the local Russian appointed official in charge. Kiev has not commented in keeping with longstanding policy. Russia invaded and illegally annexed Crimea in 2014, you'll remember. Sevastopol, which is the capital, is the home of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, which is notably without its flagship, the Moskva, because Ukraine sunk that last year. Now, the incident, the, the bombing of Sevastopol, occurred a day after Russia's continued barrage of aerial attacks across the country, killing at least 25 people and wounding scores more. In Uman, a city about 200 miles north of the front line, which has not been a focus of much fighting, a missile attack on a nine-story residential apartment complex killed at least 23 people, including five children. This is the second deadliest attack on civilians this year. Another missile hit Dnipro, killing a young woman and her two children. Ukrainian air defense has shot down 11 cruise missiles and two Iranian-made Shahid drones over the capital of Kyiv, according to officials, with the debris causing injuries and damage on the ground, but luckily no fatalities. This was the first missile attack on the capital in more than 50 days. In total, the commander of Ukraine's military forces say Russian strategic bombers flying near the Caspian Sea fired 23 cruise missiles, 21 of which were shot down by Ukrainian forces. In a statement, Russia's defense minister says in part, quote, the goal of the attack has been reached. Now, all of this commits, uh, comes amid continued call for, calls for Ukrainian leaders for more weapons, for better air defense systems, and, of course, for fighter jets. Joining me now is the retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the former director of European Affairs for the U.S. National Security Council, a board member of the Renewed Democracy Initiative, and a New York Times bestselling author of the important book, Here, Right Matters, an American Story. Colonel, good to see you this morning. Thank you for being with us. We are waiting. We're all talking about this um, this counteroffensive, the spring counteroffensive from the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, obviously, they don't make announcements about when these things start or when they uh, you know, when they're underway. We'll sort of just know it. But I was I was struck by the fact that they had uh, that the Ukrainian forces had hit Sevastopol. That's sort of the heart of the Russian presence in Ukraine. At least Ukrainians believe it to still be Ukraine. Sevastopol is the capital of Crimea. It is the Russian naval base. It's it's part of the main reason Russia ever wanted uh, Crimea. Does that mark to you the beginning of something or is this just a, another attack in a long war? 
I think it's a condition setting attack. I think what's what's most notable about this is, of course, it's an impact on Russia's warfighting capabilities, the ability to fuel ships that actually have been uh, sorting into the Black Sea to conduct these cruise missile attacks on uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian uh, peaceful cities. Uh, so it has an impact and it's going to have an impact, you know, in terms of setting the conditions, suppressing Russia's ability to uh, defend itself as the Ukrainians um, position for counterattack. But the striking thing is that Ukraine attacks military infrastructure, Russia attacks a peaceful city. The city of Uman is actually uh, notable for a bunch of different reasons, one of which is it's a, a, a pilgrimage site for the Hasidic Orthodox Jewish sect. Uh, so it's it's striking that you know this is a holy city, a holy site that the Russians are attacking to terrorize the population, while the Ukrainians, in accordance with kind of basic Western principles, go after military targets to defend themselves. But I can't escape this one point that you made about um, Trump and you know his, his name dropping Lenin. Yeah, name dropping Lenin, which is pretty hilarious. It misattributed a quote commonly attributed to a, probably one of the worst tyrants of the 20th century, Stalin. And really calling out this notion that the state should put its fingers on the scales of elections in order to steal elections. That's what he was basically yep. saying, that, you know, that's the way things should be. It's shocking, uh, the kind of overlap between Russian kind of dictatorship and authoritarianism and where the leader of the Republican Party wants to take this country. I do think it's important, though, because while the war in Ukraine is not the highest priority for American voters, particularly it may not be in the election of next year, it may still be going on. And it is important to remember, because this is full circle to how the world came to know Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, because it was it was Donald Trump's uh, potential interference in, in, in America's support of Ukraine against Russia that caused you to actually become a whistleblower. It's important for people to understand. Now there's a real war on the ground, and it is very unclear to some and probably clear to others what happens to Ukraine if Donald Trump becomes the next president of the United States. Well, it would be disastrous, but I can't, you cannot dissociate the rise of Donald Trump and t Donald Trump's corruption precipitating the first impeachment, that connection uh, as a precursor, a seed for this war. Donald Trump and the Republican Party captured by authoritarian tendencies was a precursor for this war. Fortunately, we have the valiant Ukrainians that in spite of being subject to terror campaigns are about to launch, frankly, what is clear to me will be a, a pretty darn successful counteroffensive, liberating territory and forcing uh, the Russian authoritarian leader, uh, Lenin, uh, <laughs> Lenin, Putin to the negotiating table. Uh, so I think this war you know, could start to see winding down phase towards the end of this year, if we go into next year and, and domestic elections, uh, I, I do fear that the Republican Party will start to weaken support for Ukraine. Uh, yesterday, I had a remarkable conversation with uh, Evgenia Karamurza, the wife of Vladimir Karamurza. Um, you'll remember uh, I was talking to him just a little over a year ago, and he had gone back to Russia. He was then arrested, uh, as was expected. I think most people would have expected him to be arrested. He's now been sentenced to 25 years in prison, which he, his wife tweeted was an A-plus in, in performance for democracy. If you get 25 years from Vladimir Putin for talking about the war, it means you're doing the right thing. That said, tell me what you think, what role the Russian opposition can play here because they tend to jail their opposition leaders. That's true. The Russians have been very effective. The Russian state has been very effective at uh, fracturing and suppressing the opposition. You know, leaders like Vladimir Karamurza, I've had the pleasure of, uh, of meeting him and, and speaking to him on several occasions, uh, are out there. They're suppressed. 
but frankly, until there's a, a swell of support from the public at large, uh, some sort of lifting of the blinders to the cost of this war, to the atrocities that Russia is a part of, uh, frankly, these leaders are not going to be able to build the kind of momentum to shake Russia free of, uh, of this authoritarian grip. And I don't see that happening in the short term. I think the fact is the U.S. needs to continue to resource Ukraine to win on the battlefield. The U.S. can play a supporting role in terms of sanctioning uh, Russia, ratcheting down very hard on sanctions to really kind of cut off the, the financial support. We are nowhere near that with the sanctions that we've implemented. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do in order to end this war and help drive Russia in a different direction. Colonel, good to see you again. Thanks, as always. Retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, former director for European Affairs at the National Security Council, board member of the Renewed Democracy Initiative and the author of the important book here, Right Matters, an American Story. Coming up, it's not a coincidence that the lawsuit seeking a nationwide ban on a key abortion drug was brought before an ultra-conservative Trump-appointed federal judge with a position, a public record, opposing abortion. I'll talk to Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii about the practice of judge shopping and her plan to put a stop to it. us remember Trayvon Martin. We remember what he was wearing when he was shot and killed for walking through a Florida neighborhood, a black hoodie. But his family wants you to remember Trayvon through a different lens. A new exhibit at the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture immerses visitors in a conversation that reimagines the past and present of the often difficult black experience in America. NBC's Zinclay Esamwa takes us inside Afrofuturism, a history of black futures. Museums are known for showcasing the past. What I love is seeing all the different costumes. But for the next year, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. is taking audiences to the future with a new Afrofuturism exhibit. What is Afrofuturism? Well, I think it's a way of African Americans thinking about the past and its rich history and using that to talk about the present, but also to imagine a new future. Museum director Kevin Young says the exhibit was launched to reimagine, reinterpret, and reclaim the black experience. It includes African-American classics, original costumes from productions like The Wiz, black stars like Janelle Monet, and blockbuster films. But the exhibit isn't limited to fiction and folklore. Then we also have Trayvon Martin's flight suit. Among the most prominently featured exhibit items, an aviation suit once worn by Trayvon Martin, the 17-year-old unarmed black boy fatally shot by George Zimmerman in 2012. Zimmerman was charged but acquitted following a high-profile 2013 criminal trial. Martin's death largely viewed as the impetus for the Black Lives Matter movement, sparking protests around the country and world. I sat down with Martin's parents right before the exhibit opened. So often with black life and even Trayvon's life, there's an emphasis on death. And yet in this exhibit, we see some of Trayvon's aspirations in life. How do you want people to think about him when they see this suit? When they see the suit, I want young little boys teenagers, even grown men, to realize that you can have that. It, it doesn't have to be just a dream. You can actually obtain that. Martin, widely portrayed for wearing this hoodie, remembered by his parents wearing this, 
a symbol of his hope to work in aviation. They'll see Trayvon more than the kid that got killed with a bag of Skittles and an iced tea. I'm glad to see that even though Trayvon is in heaven resting, you know, his name lives on and his his uh, accomplishments lives on. Martin's suit now placed squarely between symbols of black dreams. The Star Trek suit, Dreams Imagined, the flight suit of NASA's first black director, Dreams Realized, and Martin's suit, a dream deferred. Looking at that piece, I can say from uh, a father's standpoint that uh, Trayvon Martin is, is woven into the fabric of the United States forever. Martin's family and the museum team hoping this exhibit will reclaim black tragedy and history. Sinclair Samoa, NBC News, Washington, D.C. Coming up, what you're looking at is not a river or a lake, despite the fact that there's a boat wading through. This is a neighborhood completely flooded by the Mississippi River, and it's only expected to get worse. We'll take you to Iowa after this break. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Residents in multiple cities surrounding the Mississippi River are in the midst of a slow-moving disaster. Homes, businesses have flooded as more cities brace for the river to continue to crest sometime today into tomorrow. Melting snow from Minnesota and Wisconsin are causing river levels to rise, resulting in severe flooding. The National Weather Service says yesterday the Mississippi was cresting more than 23 feet in Dubuque, Iowa. And further south in the Quad Cities, which are five adjoining cities along the Mississippi River in Iowa and Illinois, the river is expected to crest 21.6 feet today. Nearby, people are getting around in boats to maneuver the high waters. NBC News correspondent George Solis is live in Bettendorf, Iowa right now. George, what can you tell us about the flooding that people are already seeing and what they're preparing for? Yeah, good morning, Ali. Right now, this is really adding insult to injury. There's a little bit of rainfall, and granted, it's not going to have much more of an impact than what some of that snow melt, which has contributed to this flooding here in the Quad Cities. Behind me, the mighty Mississippi, as it has taken over this neighborhood row, you can actually see a number of boats and kayaks here. This is how many people are coming in and out of their neighborhoods. It's really also infuriating to the residents of this particular community. They have no gas. About 140 customers at last check whose utility was shut off by the company. And that's really hard for a lot of these residents who want to stay behind and you know maybe take a hot shower, particularly on a cold day, and start the process of trying to do some cleanup around their homes, which, of course, won't really start until some of this water recedes. And on that note, according to some of the reports we've seen, fortunately, it looks like some of this water will start to recede about a week or so after the river crests, which, as you mentioned, is probably looking somewhere around Monday at about 21 feet. So really, just talking to residents out here, you, you really run the gamut of emotions. People who are very distraught, of course, at their homes, their possessions are now destroyed. Others who say, look, this is our way of life here. We're used to this. We have the materials necessary. What we really need is for this water to recede so we can really start to assess the damage. 
but the visuals here really tell the tale. And I want to show you, I mean, this is what people are dealing with, right? Their wow. trailers, some of their homes, some of their basements are flooded. Water keeps rising. We've seen some of the notches here where the water's so, sort of been in flux. It kind of rises and it, and it falls. But again, the expectation of the river to crest tomorrow is really what people are keeping an eye on. Uh, I talked to one couple yesterday who, uh, thanks to a, a good guy who just wanted to take them out to see their home, said, look, you really don't want to go back in there. You know, there's nothing you can do. She was emotional. He took her back anyway. He had a change of heart and said, if you really want to, and they're, they're spending a lot, a lot of time there. The other option for a lot of these residents is to stay at a hotel or a mm -hmm. shelter. Some of them don't want to do that because they just want to stay at home and really start to just assess the damage. But again, I'll leave you with this. Again, the power of Mother Nature, right? The yeah. mighty Mississippi back there taking over this street. And now people just wait for the water to recede so they can start the cleanup. Yeah, Allie. it's an important point you make. It's not it's not even the Mississippi back there. You're standing in the Mississippi River. The river takes over. The, this is now part of the river until that river uh, recedes. And that's that's the part that hard, that's hard to get your head around. This isn't a normal flood. This is this is the the mighty Mississippi in the streets um, of Bettendorf, Iowa. George, thanks very much. Please stay safe. George Solis in Bettendorf, Iowa for us. The E. Jean Carroll civil battery and defamation trial against Donald Trump resumes in less than 24 hours. What we should expect in the coming days now. Next on Belshi. The civil battery and defamation trial against the former president of the United States resumed uh, tomorrow in New York City. It was a tense first week in the courtroom as E. Jean Carroll faced pointed questions from Trump's lawyer. On Wednesday, Carroll took the witness stand early in the trial, by the way, and told jurors, quote, I'm here because Trump raped me. The writer and columnist says Trump assaulted her in a New York City department store some 25 years ago. She's now suing him for battery and defamation after he claims she made the story up. Carol is one of more than 20 women who have accused the former president of sexual misconduct since the 1980s. Trump has denied all the allegations, including Carol's. On Thursday, Carol was cross-examined by Trump lawyer Joe Tacopina, and Tacopina was reprimanded by the judge multiple times for being argumentative and repetitive. Tacopina pressed Carol on the alleged attack and asked skeptically, quote, you were supposedly raped. Carol responded, quote, I was raped. Takapina also took issue with the fact that Carol did not scream during the alleged attack in the dressing room of the department store. She re responded, quote, I'm telling you he raped me whether I screamed or not, end quote. During direct examination earlier that day, Carol also described the flood of hatred she has received online, echoing Trump's insults about her, including his own posts on Truth Social, mentioning DNA on Carol's dress that she says she was wearing at the time and the alleged attack. And also saying Carol's allegations are a, quote, made up scam. She said, quote, this morning, for instance, I thought I would just take a peek at my Twitter. She said she found an onslaught of vile messages, including ones calling her slut, ugly and old. Nevertheless, she added, I couldn't be more proud to be here. The judges told Takapina to warn his client, the former president of the United States, that any further statements about the case could open Trump up to, quote, a new source of potential liability. MSNBC legal analyst Lisa, Lisa Rubin was in the courtroom this week. She joins me now. Lisa, of course, you've been sending 
detailed notes and analysis about what's been going on in the trial. And many of our viewers may have heard a lot of it this week. But I want to go right to one thing about E. Jean Carroll and the time in which she existed. At the time she claims uh, that this attack took place, she was a, a prominent writer. People knew of who she was, but she's 79 years old today. Even at that point, it was uncommon and unlikely that women uh, would report sexual assaults and find some satisfaction or justice in it. It is still uncommon and, and right. unlikely today in 2023. But in the 90s, when she alleges this happened, it, it, one can understand, or at least I can understand, I don't know if anybody else can, but we can understand why she wouldn't have screamed, called the police, done those things. She, she even says she blames herself. Yeah, no, the, the amount of self-blame that E. Jean Carroll carries is very palpable. And, Ali, to your point about the time, it's not just the time, but generationally yes. understanding how she existed. Women were raised to be docile, to not make a scene, as she said on the stand, to be complacent and accommodating and to succeed professionally. They had to be flirtatious and comfortable with a certain sort of banter that is easily evoked in her recounting of what happened between her and Trump in those early moments at Bergdorf's and understanding the era in which she existed and came to prominence professionally right. is inseparable from understanding her experience. Because Takapina says, uh, were you, did you think he was attractive? Were you flirting with him? Was there banter between you? And she uh, answered in the affirmative in all cases, because we are supposed to understand that none of that stuff is an invitation to be raped. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, I think Takapina would like at least one juror, and you and I discussed before the segment began, in New York, in federal court, there has to be an a unanimous jury verdict. So all Takapina needs is one doubting person that has a somewhat retro version of mm -hmm. how sexual assault victims are supposed to behave. But E. Jean Carroll very much owns what was happening between us was funny until it wasn't. Right. Tell me, you said this a million times already, but let's just explain again why this is not a criminal rape trial. It's not a criminal rape trial because the police were not involved. I mean, Eugene Carroll has said a thousand times over, and Tagapina was chastised by the judge for this, I never called the police. I didn't right. call the police then. I haven't called the police now. And the statutes of limitation for a criminal rape charge are over. This is a defamation case where she is suing him not only because he denied the sexual assault, but because he went further than that. He called her a liar, a hoax, a complete con job, someone who is in cahoots with the Democratic Party. All of those things that he went above and beyond just saying it didn't happen. Right. Those are the reasons she's suing him for defamation. And she made that clear in distinguishing the assault by Trump from one that she says she experienced by Les Moonves, the former chairman of CBS, who she says quietly denied that he assaulted her, but never went further than that. And that's why she didn't sue him. So the, the thing is that Donald Trump going out and defaming her, which is what he's suing her for, is still going on. In fact, right. he was posting all through last week. And, and the judge told Takapina several times, you need to stop this. Now, that's not a First Amendment violation because he's not saying Donald Trump can't post nor that Donald Trump can't post about E. Jean Carroll. But Donald Trump was posting things that, that the judge said could be influential on the jury. Explain that to me, because the jury's not supposed to be... They're not supposed to be, yeah. right? But they're not quarantined. Right. They're not living apart from their families right now. So they have a strict instruction from the judge. You don't read news. You don't read social media. They're supposed to be on a blackout. Then again, we all know the lure of our phones. I mean, I'm, as we're sitting sure. here right now, you and I both have our phones yep. in front of us. Yep. Social media is hard to avoid. So the accusation, or rather the implication by the judge, was Trump is trying to infect this jury. He better stop. But more than that, 
He's also trying to intimidate E. Jean Carroll, who's still on the stand, because as she testified that morning on direct, she opened her Twitter account that morning and saw unleashed a new pile of hatred directed at her, not coincidentally timed with the president's 8.51 a.m. Truth Social post, right. in which he talked about the DNA issue and also sort of blasphemed against her legal team, saying they are Democratic operatives. Right. She, uh, she has been a remarkably textured character on the stand. She she cried. She talked about the way in which this has affected her life. But that was that was almost an easy part. That was the direct examination. When Takapina went at her, she she was she went back at him a few times. She did, and I, I want to be careful that we say she went back at him because she was quiet and dignified right, and pushing right, back. But right. she said. You can't beat me up for not screaming. Right. And the part that you quoted came soon after when she said, he raped me whether I screamed or not. Right. In other words, please stop going down this road because you are trying to persuade people that something that I know to my core happened didn't on the basis of my not behaving the way you think a real rape victim should. And she then sort of almost addressed the jury to saying to say he raped me. Yep. He raped me whether I screamed or not. Some women are screamers. Some women are not. Lisa, thanks very much for your great coverage of this. It's a complex case, and we rely heavily, as you know, I always do on your analysis. Lisa Rubin is an MSNBC uh, legal analyst and a former litigator. Straight ahead, America's split-screen political landscape. On one side, President Biden launching his re-election campaign. On the other, Trump launching attacks against political rivals and accusers alike. A lot has changed since the last time these two men faced off as candidates. Plus, Senator Maisie Hirono helps us understand the dangers of judge shopping. Another hour of Velshi begins right now. And good morning to you. It is Sunday, April the 30th. I'm Ali Velshi. It was will he, won't he for some time, but President Biden has made it official. Exactly four years after announcing his 2020 campaign for president, Biden announced his re-election bid this past Tuesday, setting up the possibility of a rematch against his 2020 opponent, Donald Trump. But a lot has transpired since the two men were last up for re-election against, for election against each other. And at this early stage of the 2024 election cycle, they find themselves in vastly different circumstances. For one thing, Joe Biden has the upper hand this time as the incumbent, and he's using his position to help frame his message, which his campaign boiled down to one simple phrase, quote, let's finish the job. Biden's re-election announcement video opens with images of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and abortion rights protests at the Supreme Court. Two key issues for Democrats that continue to plague the Republican Party, especially when it comes to elections. Both issues are already directly or indirectly linked to Trump, who remains under investigation by the special prosecutor Jack Smith for his role in attempting to overturn the 2020 election and who transformed the Supreme Court into a conservative institution, paving the way for Roe v. Wade to be overturned last summer. But while Biden has jumped into the race with a focused message about defending Americans' freedoms and personal rights, Trump has been fixated in recent weeks with stopping the momentum of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis who's been the former president's main rival for the GOP nomination so far. DeSantis has not yet announced a presidential bid, but according to four GOP operatives with whom NBC News spoke, he is set to announce an exploratory committee as soon as mid-May. 
A recent NBC News poll showed that Trump still has a solid lead over DeSantis, who's the only other official or prospective candidate polling in double digits right now. Trump's campaign continued its attacks on the governor this week with its first TV ad focusing on how DeSantis owes his political career to Trump. It's in stark contrast to the Democrats who appear to be falling in line to support Joe Biden's reelection, even Bernie Sanders. A top independent progressive in Congress, who was also Biden's main challenger during the 2020 primaries, came out with an early endorsement of the president, telling Associated Press, I'm in it to do what I can to make sure that the president is reelected, end quote. Now, Biden's also trying to emphasize the strength of the Democratic coalition and especially his partnership with Vice President Kamala Harris. The vice president was featured in Biden's reelection announcement video and has been taking the lead on the administration's support for reproductive rights as part of a concerted effort to elevate her profile. Meanwhile, Trump's embattled relationship with his own former vice president may be a huge liability for him as Mike Pence considers entering the presidential race himself. And on top of all that, Mike Pence spent several hours last Thursday testifying to the federal grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Aside from Pence's testimony to the federal grand jury, the writer and columnist E. Jean Carroll also testified in court this week about her allegation that the former president raped her in a dressing room back in the 1990s. Trump has denied the allegations, and we're going to have more on that later in the show. But it all really underscores the vastly different circumstances of Biden's campaign compared to that of his Republican counterpart. Joining me now is Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee and the former lieutenant governor of Maryland. He's also the host of the Michael Steele podcast and an MSNBC political analyst. Also with us, Karen Tumulty. She is a political columnist for The Washington Post, the author of the book, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. And both of them are good friends of mine. Thank you to both of you for being here uh, this morning uh, to help us through this. Michael, we are in the election season now. Whether people who are watching this like it or not, whether people don't want to think about an election that's 18 months away, we're in it now. Donald Trump's in it. Joe Biden's in it. Um, David Jolly of Florida, the former Republican congressman, said there are really only three people likely to be president. It's Donald Trump, Joe Biden, or Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is at the moment faltering. Uh, What's your evaluation of, of how this campaign is shaping up to be different from the last one? Well, I, I think it's shaping up to be different in the in the sense that Donald Trump um, is in the position to to run the table, but he, he does have these little things like you know I don't know investigations and um, you know all types of court battles that he's got to go through. But here's here's where I think it's going to be different in the main. I just don't see the base peeling off of him um, because of any of this. Um, I think they solidified and hardened around him. He's very good at effect uh, at affecting them in a way in which they double down on his problems. In other words, in, in, in traditional political circles, if you have a federal investigation, let alone a rape case <laughs> that's being waged against you, everyone in the political class backs away and say, you go work that out. We're moving on. That's not the case here. The party the politicians and and primarily the base have said not only do will we stand with you but we will block and tackle on your behalf so you know with all due respect to my friend david jolly there's this is a two person race mm-hmm. ron DeSantis is not a factor in this race in fact i i just said publicly a few weeks ago i'm suspicious as if he you know as if he even runs um, given the dynamics and the, of what i just said how does he break that stranglehold 
Um, he is almost 20 points down. How, how does he break that? Um, and, and so the reality for Republicans is there is no one who can unleash the grip that Trump has. This election is setting itself up to be a Biden-Trump election um, until a Ron DeSantis, a Chris Christie, or someone else are able to take that away from Trump. And I haven't seen that happen yet. Well, as a, as a former a statewide elected official, uh, making a fight with the biggest employer and possibly one of the most popular employers in your state isn't a great recipe for success. Carol, Carol no. let's talk about the Biden uh, reelection campaign launch and the message that he's trying to get out there, which you wrote about in The Washington Post, in which you wrote, in 2020, Biden was right. Americans were looking for a corrective to the extremism and division. He can't argue convincingly that things have gotten all that much better better since then, even without Trump in the White House. But the stakes are even clearer. This is still about the character of the country, end quote. Uh, Karen, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, Does this resonate, though, more or less than it did in 2020? It was the soul of the nation um, in 2020. You're right. Things are probably worse. And in fact, you know, what struck me looking at the video was not how things have changed in the past four years, but the fact the themes that are still there. He opened his presidential campaign four years ago with footage of the racist protests in Charlottesville. And he opened this time with footage of January 6th. And he also made the point that he actually, I don't believe, even mentioned Trump's name. Trump shows up in the video only fleetingly uh, embracing Ron DeSantis. But he does show people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and the January 6th rioters to make the point, I think, that Trumpism has become much bigger than Trump. Trump. Um, and while Michael is certainly better than I am about the, to knowing the internal dynamics of the Republican Party at this point, I'm not quite so ready to count Ron DeSantis out because I do think there is this time going to be a great desire to win in the Republican Party. And at some point, and the DeSantis backers will start making the argument, which they are certainly making to me, which is they believe there is only one Republican that that Biden can beat, and that is Donald Trump. And there is only one Republican who has the potential to beat Trump. Uh, again, it, it certainly DeSantis has not been all that impressive in his uh, last month, but I do think there is potentially some strength there if he can fix some of his problems. Michael, I had a conversation uh, yesterday with a state senator from South Carolina, one of the five women who banded together for the third time to stop draconian anti-abortion measures in uh, in South Carolina. This woman is Republican. She was a Republican state senator. Of the five women in the in the uh, in the state Senate in South Carolina, three are Republicans. She came on. She talked about her Republican credentials. She talked about the fact that she doesn't hope that women have abortions, but that she's not going to criminalize or, or judge them for doing it. So if Karen says Republicans just want to win with or without Trump, there are still the problems about being out of step with Americans on some major issues at the moment, including the criminalization of abortion, uh, the regulation of, of guns um, and, and other matters. And that seems to have given Democrats the win 
beneath their wings in the last month. It has. And, and, and so you can't you can't discount any of that. Yeah, there's a, everybody wants to win inside the Republican Party. They're sick of losing. They haven't won since, oh, I don't know, 2010. Hmm. I wonder why that is. But the reality of it is, quite honestly, that all these other issues are going to prevail upon the nominee of the party. That, you know, Ron DeSantis, going back to, to, to how this plays out for someone like him, okay, great, you best Trump. Now what's your conversation with the rest of the country when they look at what you've done in Florida? And, and you think that translates? You think people want you to be the president that bans books across the nation, that attacks corporate America because they disagree with your political ideology? Uh, so this, this is not just about winning the election. You've got to make a case in which people give you the win. <laughs> and it, whether it's abortion, uh, I don't know, giving anyone just a, a non-license to carry weapons on the streets of Florida. Translate that across the country as we see these mass shootings continuing unabated. So there's a lot more to this, to this narrative that Republicans have to account for besides getting the person who sounds like Trump, feels like Trump, but ain't Trump, and think you're gonna win the messaging uh, conversation with the American people across the country when they're looking at what Republican legislators are doing, ousting the only uh, the two black uh, legislators in Tennessee, uh, you know, criminalizing the womb of women. And now with Marjorie Taylor Greene's latest stupid saying that, well, unless you're a biological mother, you're not a you're real not a mother. mother. Well, so much for family values. Right. So let's be honest about the about the crapshoot that the Republicans are are playing here. And I, I, I'm just waiting to hear how they message it. That's going to be interesting to watch. I am uh, always energized and smarter for having a conversation with the two of you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Michael Steele is the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, host of the Michael Steele podcast and an MSNBC political analyst. And if I'm not mistaken, is going to be uh, uh, handling the show for me next weekend. So I thank you for that. Carol Tumulty is a political columnist with The Washington Post. Still to come, we've heard the horror stories of post-Roe America. Now there's new evidence that sheds light on the draconian anti-abortion infrastructure that's the root cause of all of this suffering. Plus, extremist groups continue to exploit the system, shopping around for judges to fit their cases. I'm going to talk about the danger that this poses to the future of American democracy and what Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii is doing to fight it. Coming up on Belshi. All right, take a look at this. This is Amarillo, Texas. It's situated in the prairie grasslands of the northern panhandle. It's a decently sized city, not huge, about 200,000 people. It's known to have extreme weather, and it's one of the meatpacking capitals of the world. But Amarillo, for some reason, is also where a court decided that medical providers across the whole United States should be allowed to discriminate against LGBTQ people. It's also where, in another nationwide injunction, a court determined that the Trump era remain in Mexico policy should be reinstated. And for some reason, it was in Amarillo, Texas, where a court decided that the Food and Drug Administration should revoke its authorization of Mifepristone, one of the two abortion pills. So no disrespect intended toward Amarillo, Texas, but why does this random little city keep turning up as the epicenter for nationwide decisions? Well, it's actually not random at all. 
Amarillo is home to the super conservative Trump appointed federal judge, Matthew Kaczmarek. Every federal civil case filed in Amarillo, Texas, is automatically assigned to Matthew Kaczmarek because he's the division's only federal judge. And with a conservative, consistent conservative track record like his, it's not all that hard to guess which way a judge like Kaczmarek might rule. Now, a version of this practice known as forum shopping has been employed by both sides of the political spectrum for a long time. Whether you consider it manipulative or strategic, it's logical. Whomever controls where the case is filed is probably going to file in a place that is strategically advantageous to them. Republicans did it in the Obama era, filing a disproportionate number of cases in courts that would lead to the Fifth Circuit, which is based in New Orleans, which tends to rule conservatively. Democrats did it during the Trump era a lot, filing a disproportionate number of cases in courts that would lead to the Ninth Circuit based in San Francisco, which tends to rule more liberally. It's not simply a Republican problem or a Democratic problem, but in the last couple of years, a disproportionate number of bills have been funneled through Trump-appointed single-judge districts, creating a more pointed version of forum shopping. Instead of directing a bill to a general region or district that a litigant hopes will boost their odds of success, a pattern has emerged of plaintiffs directing bills to small subdivisions with just one judge, which effectively ensures their desired outcome. On Thursday, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York sent a letter to the chief judge of the Northern District of Texas, where Amarillo is located. It reads in part, the state of Texas has sued the Biden administration at least 29 times in Texas federal district courts, but it has not filed even one of these cases in Austin, where the Texas Attorney General's office is located. Instead, Texas has always sued in divisions where case assignment procedures ensure a particular preferred judge or one of a handful of preferred judges will hear the case. That includes the Northern District of Amarillo's, the Northern District's Amarillo Division, where Texas has filed seven of its cases against the federal government. Many other litigants have done the same, including the Alliance Defending Freedoms, in its case challenging the FDA's approval of Mifepristone. Now, the Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan expressed her frustration with this practice in an immigration case vaguely named Texas versus the United States that was filed in a different single judge division in the Southern District of Texas. In Texas, there are divisions within districts. You can pick your trial court judge. Um, uh, You know, you play by the rules. That's fine. But you pick your trial court judge, one judge stops a federal immigration policy in its tracks. Now, Texas has a relatively large number of single judge divisions, making it a hotspot for judge shopping. But it's not just a Texas problem. According to analysis by Bloomberg, Republican attorneys general have filed more than 20 percent of their multi-state litigations in one court in the Western District of Louisiana. One judge in that district has heard more Republican-led multi-state litigations than any other judge in the entire country. The federal government has tried to fight back. The Biden administration has moved to transfer a couple of the cases in these single-judge divisions in Texas to different venues, but its requests have been repeatedly denied. Judge shopping has been thrust into the spotlight primarily because of the Miffy-Pristone case, and now some members of Congress want to put an end to that exploitation of our court system before it gets even worse.
On Wednesday, Hawaii Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono introduced the Stop Judge Shopping Act to Congress. The bill would give the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., the exclusive authority to hear civil lawsuits with nationwide impact. Upon unveiling the bill, Hirono tweeted, quote, activist plaintiffs should not be able to handpick individual judges to set nationwide policy. To address the critical issue of judge shopping, I'm working to ensure major cases are decided based on the law, not the ideological agenda of any one judge, end quote. Joining me now is Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. Senator Aloha, it has been a minute since you and I have talked. Nice to see you. Good morning. (laughs) Let's talk about this. Where do you draw the line between the fact that some districts and some judges and some uh, uh, some appellate courts are more liberal and conservative. And that's OK. That's historically happened. It probably happens in, in many countries. And this hyper specific judge shopping that we're talking about, where you go to a particular district and you're only going to get this judge. What's what's the line in determining where people should and shouldn't be able to to file their cases? Well, definitely in the state of Texas, where 20 of the 27 Judicial divisions in Texas has only one judge. That is why I'd say it's so obvious and easy for people to go and pick that one judge, which is what happened with Judge Kaczmarek, uh, for the desired result. So that's so obvious. That's a line. Let me ask you about um, something that that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts addressed in his uh, 2021 year end report. He said senators from both sides of the aisle have expressed concern that case assignment procedures allowing the party filing a case to select a division of a district court might, in effect, enable the plaintiffs to select a particular judge to hear a case. The Judicial Conference has long supported the random assignment of cases and fostered mm-hmm. the role of district judges as generalists capable of handling the full range of issues. Obviously, that last sentence is the one that's problematic. Are they are they and should they be generalists um, uh, capable of handling the full range of legal issues? Because when you look at somebody like Kazmarek, you think to yourself a reasonable read of his history would say not really. You know, basically, you want all of our judges to be able to decide cases based on objective, fair application of the law and the facts. That is not what happens with a judge like Kasmerik, who has an ideological perspective. And frankly, that is how the majority of our Supreme Court decides too many cases, starting, of course, with the, the Roe decision. And so we, you know, Americans, we should know that our judges are being fair and objective and that cases are not being decided based on their ideological perspective. And that is why I introduced this bill. And frankly, I'm glad that uh, that Chuck Schumer wrote a letter to the chief judge of the Northern District of Texas because they could randomly select which judge is going to get the cases so that litigants can't handpick the judge to give them the desired results. And uh, in Senator Schumer's letter, uh, he wrote, Uh, If that flexibility continues to allow litigants to handpick their preferred judges and effectively guarantee their preferred outcomes, Congress will consider more prescriptive requirements. Can you give me a sense of your bill and what these prescriptive requirements would be? How would they actually change the system? Well, certainly it would prevent uh, the litigants in in Texas. They would have to go to the district court in Washington, D.C., which has decades and decades of experience dealing with cases that have to do with federal law, federal regulations, and federal administrative decisions. And they do it on the basis of uh, 
objective analysis. And that is where my bill would send these kinds of cases. And no longer would somebody with litigants be able to go and go to any one of 20 divisions in Texas where there's only one judge. In last year, actually, after uh, Judge Roberts, uh, Justice Roberts's uh, guidance, the rules were actually changed in Texas. There are patent cases now in Western Texas, the, the Western District of Texas, that are now divided randomly between twelve judges in that district. Mm-hmm. Now, that was just a simple rule change. Could that yes. fix this situation, or do you require legislation to do it? Oh, that would help. That would certainly help, but um, you know, in the event that this doesn't happen, but I'm really glad that there's so much more attention being paid to how our judges decide cases. And uh, there is a growing recognition that, that there are too many judges who apply their ideological perspective and agendas to decision-making. And I, and I would say that our Supreme Court is certainly not immune from that. And that mm-hmm. leads to discussion about court reform, starting with, of course, our Supreme Court having a code of ethics. Uh, yeah, that would be a good start, but that's another conversation for us. Yeah. Uh, Senator, good to see you. Thank <laughs> you for. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, good to see you. Thank you for being with us again. Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono of the state of Hawaii. All right, still to come, a study shows that draconian abortion bans in one state have created such chaos and confusion that hospitals cannot explain their own emergency abortion protocols. If you have a pen and paper in reach, you're going to want to take this down. We've got some homework for you, our Velshi Band Book Club members. But you're going to like this assignment. Grab a copy of They Called Us Enemy by the author, the activist, and the author, the great George Takei. The book poignantly chronicles the Takei family's imprisonment within American internment camps during World War II. They Called Us Enemy is a graphic novel. It's powerfully crafted using the clear language and comic book style drawings of a children's book to tell a very serious story. I have to warn you, it is a very powerful read. After you finish They Called Us Enemy, send us your thoughts, your reactions, your questions for author George Takei to my story at Velshi.com. You can also tweet me. All right. Coming up, the potentially deadly consequences of living in post-Roe America. Women living under anti-abortion regimes are coming forward with horror stories about being denied abortion care. I'm going to speak to one of them, Amanda Zorowski, who was denied an emergency abortion in Texas until after she went into septic shock. I cannot adequately put into words the trauma and despair that comes with waiting to either lose your own life, your child's, or both. For days, I was locked in this bizarre and avoidable hell. Would Willow's heart stop, or would I deteriorate to the brink of death? Fresh evidence this week that the uh, of the danger that exists for women living under post uh, under anti-abortion regimes in post-Roe America. The post-Roe era has been marked by dispatches from these states, stories of rape victims forced to travel out of state, women suffering miscarriages, medical emergencies being denied life-saving care because of extreme abortion bans. And now a study using Oklahoma as an example exposes the system that is setting the stage for these horrific stories. The chaos caused by draconian abortion bans that leave doctors and hospitals unable to treat patients. The study, published jointly by the Center for Reproductive Rights, Oklahoma Call for Reproductive Justice, and Physicians for Human Rights, surveyed 34 hospitals in Oklahoma and found that most were not able to explain their own abortion policies in cases of medical emergencies. 
According to the report, quote, when asked how they handle obstetric emergencies, hospital staff provided opaque, contradictory or incorrect information and offered little reassurance that clinicians' medical judgment and pregnant uh, patients would be prioritized. Oklahoma's residents are currently living under three overlapping and conflicting abortion bans that, if violated, impose harsh criminal penalties on health care providers. Exceptions to these new laws are extremely narrow and extremely confusing to healthcare workers, according to the report. And that confusion, to be clear, is endangering the lives of patients who need reproductive health care, which is health care. Here's an example relayed to NPR this week. 25-year-old J.C. Statton showed up at an Oklahoma hospital in March to treat her molar pregnancy. Now, that's a strange word because it's a term that's used to describe a rare complication that happens when instead of a fetus developing, tissue inside the uterus becomes a cancerous tumor and therefore has zero chance of ever being a viable pregnancy. J.C. says hospital staff told her that she had to be much sicker before they could remove the tumor. And so she says she was told to sit in the parking lot and wait for her health to deteriorate. Staten's husband pleaded with the staff to treat his wife as she was doubled over in pain. The longer the tumor remained inside her, the higher the risk was that her life would be threatened. She could develop internal bleeding, kidney and liver failure, and possibly even have a stroke. Even as the staff acknowledged that the molar pregnancy posed serious health risk, they explained that the Oklahoma law prevented them from treating her, saying, quote, we cannot touch you unless you are crashing in front of us or your blood pressure goes so high that you are fixing to have a heart attack. Horror stories like this are playing out across America. America's patchwork of confusing abortion laws have had their intended effect, paralyzing medical professionals at the expense of pregnant women in crisis. Amanda Zorowski, who is suing the state of Texas after being denied a life-saving abortion, told lawmakers on Wednesday that not receiving abortion care harmed her mental health and might prevent her from having children in the future. Amanda received an emergency abortion only after she went into septic shock. During a Senate hearing on the impact of the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade, Amanda described her ordeal. We've heard a lot today about the mental trauma and um, the negative harmful effects on a person's psychological well-being after they have an abortion, supposedly. And I'm curious why that's not relevant for me as well, because I wasn't permitted to have an abortion. And the trauma and the PTSD and the depression that I have dealt with in the eight months since this happened to me is paralyzing. On top of that, I'm still struggling to have children. And I wanted to address my senators, Cruz and Cornyn, who uh, neither of whom regrettably are in the room right now. But I would like for them to know that what happened to me, I think most people in this room would agree, was horrific. But it's a direct result of the policies that they support. I nearly died on their watch. Amanda Zorowski joins me now. She's the lead plaintiff in the Texas abortion ban lawsuit. And as you just saw, she testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Capitol Hill this morning. Also with me is Dr. Jamila Parrott, the president and CEO of the Physicians for Reproductive Health and a certified obstetrician and gynecologist. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for uh, being with us. Amanda, let me start with you, please. 
how are you doing? I just want to ask you, because you talked not only about your physical health, but your mental health, the struggles you go through, and the fact that you're in a lawsuit and a political battle right now. How are you doing? <laughs> um, thank you for having me. Uh, it's it's complicated, and there's a lot going on. Um, so just taking it one day at a time, um, you know, being able to channel my grief and trauma into something that hopefully is going to bring about some good has been enormously healing. But as I mentioned um, in the hearing, the the trauma physically and emotionally that was inflicted on me as a result of the laws here is making it harder um, for for us to have children. And so um, I'd say a lot of high highs and, and low lows right now. What's, it's, it's very, very brave what you do. To, it would be brave just to talk about your own uh, personal experiences and your mental health and your physical health. But to do it in front of a, a congressional committee is intimidating. Uh, why were your senators not there? Did you ever get any explanation as to why Cornyn and Cruz were not present to hear what you because I, I would assume that's the whole point of these hearings, right? To hear, hear real people's stories about the impact of their decisions. That's what I thought was going to happen. Um, I thought that they were there to listen to me and hear what their constituents and the people who elect them have to say and um, how they feel. But as you saw, that wasn't the case. So it is worth noting that they were both in the room um, for for some of the hearing. But when it was my turn to speak, they were notably not there. And Odd. I have not I have not gotten an answer as to why. I know that certain um, media outlets have reached out to them for comment, and I don't believe that they've gotten back as far as I know. Dr. Parrott, um this Oklahoma study and Amanda's particular uh, circumstance is is it's validating of the view that a whole bunch of people had, but it's not surprising probably to you that the desired effect here is for attorneys general and state legislators and others to intimidate the system, not just women, but their health care providers. Uh, and we've gone past intimidation now in Oklahoma into into straight up confusion. A woman shows up at a hospital uh, in distress uh, about anything to do with, uh, I think, anything below the rib cage, and, and doctors freak out, hospitals freak out, emergency rooms freak out. They don't know what they're supposed to do because they fear prosecution. Absolutely. Let me start by just expressing deep gratitude to you, Amanda, for sharing your story. It is a very brave thing to do. And, and to be honest, as somebody who's also testified before these committees, it is intimidating. It can sure. be. But to be able to have that stage and to speak your truth, I'm deeply, great, deeply grateful. I also want to say that should not be what is required mm-hmm. to get access to basic, essential, time-sensitive health care. And you're absolutely right. The desired impact was confusion and chaos. It's not that we as healthcare providers don't know how to take care of people who are having miscarriages or to care for folks who are seeking abortion. But what we have is a bunch of individuals with no scientific background, no medical training, legislating the care that we can provide in our offices, in our hospitals, in our clinics. And the result is dangerous and it's violent because it will result in the death of many more pregnant people and people with the capacity for pregnancy. 
we will continue to see this play out in big ways. Who ter- people who turn to the health care system, which is what we are taught since we are little kids. That's where you go when there's a problem. You go to your health care system to fix it um, and that you and doctors and nurses and medical professionals professionals will deal with it. And now we have this extra layer in there of a bunch of politicians deciding what happens with your body. I'm going to ask both of you to stay right where you are. Dr. Jamila Parrott, Amanda Zarowski, please stay with me. I want to continue this important conversation after a quick break. Still with me, Amanda Zarowski is the lead plaintiff in the Texas abortion ban lawsuit. Jamila Parrott is the president and CEO of Physicians for Reproductive Health, a certified obstetrician and gynecologist. Thanks for being here, uh, both of you. Amanda, I know you've told the story a lot of times, but it, it, it's, it's crucial. The reason you tell it is so people hear it and understand uh, what you go through. Uh, there are a lot of women who do not plan to have complications in their pregnancies, although America is higher on the list of of, of dangerous pregnancies than than uh, most developed nations by a long shot. But tell me what happened in your pregnancy. What was the process that led you to almost dying because you couldn't be provided with the services you needed? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first and foremost, I think it's worth noting that it took about a year and a half um, of fertility treatment to even get pregnant. So when my husband and I found out that we were expecting, we were completely um, just over the moon, ecstatic. And for about 17 and a half weeks, things were going really well. And then just one day shy of 18 weeks, um, I had some curious, unexpected symptoms and uh, found out very, very quickly that I had a condition called cervical insufficiency um, or incompetent cervix, which just basically meant that I was dilating prematurely. And because it happened very quickly for me, um, and my membranes were were uh, hemorrhaging. Our our doctor um, told us that we were inevitably going to lose the baby, um, and so unfortunately, at that point, what I needed was an abortion because I was unprotected. I was left vulnerable with, um, you know, the condition that I was dealing with and we couldn't get one because the baby's heart was still beating and I wasn't sick. And so the only option that we had was to wait until either the baby's heart stopped or I got so sick that my life was considered in danger. Um, And for me, it was the latter that happened and it took three days to get there and going into septic shock before I could get treatment. And it's also worth noting that in those three days, we were back and forth to the hospital several times um, being denied health care because, again, I wasn't considered sick enough. Dr. Parrott, three days. Uh, uh, Amanda uses the terms curious, unexpected symptoms, which I'm sure is the case for all of us who are not trained as doctors. Right. Anything we get is is unexpected. So we go to the doctor for this. And uh, if the life of the mother is in danger, most people uh, except not most people, I, I guess most people, but most people accept that that's uh, something that should be treated. So what happens now? What Amanda describes is a- entirely normal for somebody who is in a pregnancy. Something goes wrong. You go to seek help. She was three days away from septic shock. What went wrong here? 
so many things went wrong. The number one thing that went wrong is that for those of us who trained for decades to provide this care, instead have our medical knowledge, our training, our experience, and most importantly, the folks who need care have their knowledge, their lived experience disregarded uh, at the hand of politicians who are making decisions about our agency, our bodily autonomy, and our, our well-being. Let me say really clearly, this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It's dangerous. And you mentioned at the outset uh, the rate of um, the dangerous risk that pregnancies cause in this country more than others. The United States spends more per capita on healthcare than any country in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have the most abysmal maternal mortality rates. And Amanda's story is a testament to that. More pregnant people will die. More mothers will die uh, as this continues. And we're already seeing the impact of that in the state of Texas, in Oklahoma, in places where abortion bans have been restricted, Medicaid has not been expanded, and those with the greatest need to access care are continuing to get the least. It's unacceptable. It's not medicine. It's not care. It's not why I trained for 15 years to take care of folks in my community. Amanda, you heard me telling the story about J.C. Statton in Oklahoma, who had a molar pregnancy. There was no chance that there was going to be a, uh, a baby. That's just that's just not it's, they should just change the name of molar pregnancy. And they told her they can't treat her unless uh, her blood pressure spikes and she's in danger of a heart attack or stroke. So she waited in the parking lot. Sounds like an outrageous, crazy story to me and most of my viewers. And I bet you you read this and you say, yeah. I get it. I totally get how that happened in neighboring Oklahoma. It's happening across the country. Exactly. It's horrific. And when you hear these stories, people should be outraged and they should be terrified. But unfortunately, what's happening is it's going to continue to happen and it's going to happen more and more as more restrictions are passed in more states across the country. And so what happened to me is eventually going to be normal. Because yep. we know it, and Texas especially, we know that they're trying to pass even more restrictive laws. And, you know, if, if we don't do something, this is going to become normal when it absolutely should not be. It doesn't need to be normal. This actually isn't a conversation we should even be having to have, but we're going to have it. We're going to have it many times. Amanda, it's so remarkably brave of you to keep telling this story over and over again. You will save lives as a result of doing this. Uh, Dr. Parrott, thank you as well for continuing to save lives of, of women. Amanda Zarowski, the lead plaintiff in the Texas abortion ban lawsuit, and Dr. Jamila Parrott is the president and CEO of the Physicians for Reproductive Health. She's a certified obstetrician and gynecologist. Well, that does it for me. Thank you for watching. Catch me back here next Saturday and Sunday morning from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern.